traveling by freighter and by purely carbon, low carbon means is very challenging. And it is much easier to make sure that trees are sustainably planted to offset your emissions. This is The Butterfly Effect, a podcast that shows the big impact a small action can do. Tali Urat is talking to those special people that make a difference with nature and trees. Welcome everyone to The Butterfly Effect. My name is Tali Orad. I'm your host and your butterfly here. My special guest today is Bill Liao. Bill is a Chinese-Australian-Irish entrepreneur, investor, former diplomat, business mentor, author, passionate leader, and speaker with a distinguished record in business development and community activism. Bill is the co-founder of Coder Dojo Movement and of WeForest. His career in tech and business encompasses two unicorn companies and launching the world's first biotech accelerator. He is a general partner in SOSV, a venture capital fund of over $1 billion dollars, and the founder of the SOSV Momentum Pre-Accelerator Program. Welcome, Bill, to The Butterfly Effect. Thank you very much for having me here, Tali. It's a pleasure. An entrepreneurial background with environmental diplomacy and venture capitalism is a mix you don't hear every day. So maybe we can start with sharing a little bit about your background and what made you start. So I'm a high school dropout. Uh, I dropped out because I was you know, bullied in, at school for being uh, multiracial. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to find any sort of power, <laughs> any sort of you know, ability. Uh, and one of the things that led me to being able to become much more fully self-expressed was uh, my wife getting us both involved with a charity called The Hunger Project mm-hmm. and at literally pledging money we didn't have and then going forth and trying to actually make that happen before actually becoming successful in business. You know, the, the example of the women working in villages that the Hunger Project was supporting, actually the state changed when they turned around and said, you know what, despite all the odds, despite all the things against me, despite all the unlucky things that have happened, them say, I'm going to commit to a new future for myself and my village. And then seeing them actually carry that out, mm-hmm. that was extraordinary. Yeah. And putting ourselves out there and saying, look, we're going to actually make a, a contribution to this we don't know how we're going to do it but we're actually going to to commit first and then do it mm-hmm. was very personally empowering and my wife pledged five grand I pledged 50 grand we delivered a hundred grand wow and you know in my career uh, I've had both successes and failures but the successes far outweigh the failures uh, <laughs> I've co-founded two multi-billion dollar Uh, value companies as well as being uh, you know there for the growth of SOSV as it, as it went from 50 million to 1.1 billion under management so yeah that attitude of doing stuff 
that entrepreneurial attitude, you know, once you're inspired and you start taking those steps, uh, it's very potent. Yeah, for sure. And I'm, I'm sure that you also learned of, from all those failures in order to get to your success. So that's, that's inspiring and should not discourage anybody. How do you leverage all this knowledge, this entrepreneurial knowledge to help in the fight against climate change? The word entrepreneur simply means doer. And so if you can first really educate yourself about what the problem is and what actually uh, creates the circumstances that has the problem emerge, you can then choose to take action to transform those circumstances. And whether that's in business, whether that's in philanthropy, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that holds us back is fear of failure or worse yet, fear of being seen to fail. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that when you are doing something new, you are automatically going to make mistakes. Right. And while... Those mistakes may not be okay. Like, you know, there are mistakes you can make that, that will just stop things from working completely. Right. Most mistakes are really pathways to learning something that you can then iterate what you do, change it up, make mm-hmm. it better. And applying that to We Forest or Coda Dojo or Social Tech Trust or Sense Foundation or um, you know any of the other activities, practical action, all of these philanthropic activities, the same rules apply as, as does the rules of startup and entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Once you get over what other people think, once you realize that most people, most of the time, are actually much more interested in their own concerns about themselves than they are about you. And therefore, you actually have a lot of freedom to make mistakes uh, and not be judged. What other people think then becomes less important. And that's also freedom to actually go out and do stuff. The biggest mistake I think people make is only thinking about things without even talking about them. The second biggest mistake is that people just talk about things and don't actually try them. And you actually not were not just talking, so you were just you, you were taking action and, and talking we forced and you mentioned that. And you you actually launched it, if I'm correct, on a TED talk back in 2011 when you pledged to plant two trillion trees. So where is that standing? And you mentioned mistakes. I would love to hear those mistakes. Firstly, We Forest actually started well before then because mm-hmm. we were doing the research on just what would be needed. And right. you know, the TED Talk was a place to announce a commitment. And that was a mistake in a way in and of itself because the commitment turned out to be too big. Um, and therefore, both not only impossible, but also oversized for the, for the need. As right. we have gone through the decades, we have uh, 
or the decade, we've seen that with better and better modeling, that the number of trees that needed to be planted is actually far lower than that to have the initial impact that's needed. Mm-hmm. And then from a personal perspective, I actually didn't fly. I pledged not to fly until we reached some goals. You know, those goals changed over time as we got clearer and clearer on our mission. Mm-hmm. And I, in February, achieved the goal of funding 100 million trees in we, through Wee Forest. Congratulations. And uh, I can fly again. My, my board <laughs> agreed that 10 years on the ground was enough and that I was, you know, with that many trees funded, it was better off actually getting on a plane and going some places to make a difference. Okay, so back, back um, off for a second. Um, <laughs> you pledged in 2011 that I until you plant sufficient enough trees and your you mentioned two trillions but let's leave that number for a second yeah. until you plant those numbers of trees you are not flying and you have not flew yeah, for I, I, 10 I, years I didn't, I didn't fly for 10 years I took boats across the Atlantic I took trains I went to cop by train I um, took the Trans-Siberian Railway to Japan. I traveled entirely on the ground, you know, so, uh, sometimes every week across the UK by ferry. Um, were you ever at home or years. you were on the road the entire time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, maybe my wife should answer that question. <laughs> Let's just say that I tried to concentrate my travel into blocks. <laughs> okay. Because that's a huge challenge and it's a huge commitment. It's not easy. Oh, yeah. You, you especially realize that when you're in the middle of the Atlantic on a freighter um, being tossed around in a hurricane oh um, and the ship is, is, le- is leaning 27 degrees back and forth and corkscrew rolling, then you start to think, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And it's it's also in your business, um, everything is is now. And I feel like traveling for a week, there is, you're away from your desk. Um, you need well, to take it, it, traveling it, right into consideration. It's, yeah. Uh, it actually takes um, 10 to 14 days to cross the Atlantic on a freighter. Wow. Okay. So would you recommend that to others that want to do it? Or you would say, well, don't ever do that? I would would say to anyone, make a big commitment and hold yourself to it. And you will increase the capacity of your integrity. I would also say that traveling by freighter and by purely carbon low carbon means is very challenging uh, and it is much easier to make sure that trees are sustainably planted to uh, you know offset your emissions and when I talk about sustainably planting I'm talking about reforesting degraded land turning it back into permaculture food forests Mm-hmm. and empowering local people to improve their livelihoods through the planting and growing and maintenance of those forests, which yeah. is what we forest does. I do not mean just not clearing trees. 
Right, right. And just so people understand, permaculture is a form of agriculture and it's a growth of agriculture ecosystem in a self-sufficient and sustainable way. Um, by the way, comparison permaculture to agroforestry? Permaculture food forests can be a subset of agroforestry as well. Right. Uh, the, the primary difference in agroforestry versus our permaculture systems are that we are cropping trees from the perspective of uh, creating forage, creating fruits, nuts, coffee, chocolate, you know, medicines, uh, mm -hmm. bush honey, animal forage. You know, the, there's, there's a multiplicity of outputs from a permaculture system with no oil input, um, whereas a lot of agroforestry is predominantly the harvest is timber. And there's a, there's a difference um, in terms of carbon, length of carbon sequestration, depending on what that timber is harvested to do. So it's, it's not necessarily because there's some uh, agroforestry that is not just for timber, but we, we can leave it for a different discussion. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's also that uh, permaculture, you don't necessarily have to have trees uh, incorporated versus uh, agroforestry. This is it's part true. of it. Uh, all the permaculture we do, though, is growing food forests. So it is always agroforestry. We is a company or is it you? Uh, we as We Forest. Uh, I, I mean, We Forest has, has funded 100 million trees, all mm -hmm. of them, you know, using that sustainability. And, and don't get me wrong, I also know that agroforestry does not necessarily mean timber. It's just that I see the label of agroforestry applied to a lot of timber. Right. And some of that is actually a good sequestration system and some of it isn't. Yes, that, that is true. And, and what do you find the, the biggest challenge that farmers are facing with this method? Um, the biggest challenge that, you know, the farmers that we work with face uh, is that diabolical um, combination of disempowerment, poverty, and uh, you know, uh, an inability to access good quality information. Those things are very hard to overcome just by yourself. If right. you're you know, in a fishing village next to a former mangrove bed, or if you're you know, in Tigray in Ethiopia, and you're also having to contend with a civil war, a drought, and a plague of locusts at the same time. Right. And we, we forest helps them and, and help educate them and provide them with the tools? We actually don't really like the word help. Because um, there's an implication in help that people need help, which is okay. somewhat disempowering um you know there are three charitable models that that i know of in the world today there's handouts which is disempowering because you know you're giving somebody something for nothing and right. you're not actually demanding anything in return which is often degrading 
-hmm. There's hand-ups, which are often said to be better than handouts, and I would guess they are a little bit better. But it ignores the kind of patronizing view that someone is beneath you and you therefore have to give them a hand up. Uh, and that, to me, also is somehow degrading. And then there's the model that we would prosecute, which is a handshake, which is much closer to a business relationship where you see everybody as equal partners and there's an exchange. And that exchange is, is empowering for both sides. You know, the, the, the biggest opportunity I see in the world is that we can lift literally billions of people out of poverty by partnering with them to, you know, lift them out of fiscal po poverty mm -hmm. and to li lift us out of what I would describe as carbon po poverty. Yeah. So in practicality, do you... Is there, do they buy the seedlings? Do they come up and join some sort of programs? How does it work? You know, you've got to work very holistically. You've got to actually make transformational change on the ground. And that means you actually have to go and listen to local people and you have to recruit local people to actually go on an exploration of what is possible, what are the conditions that are keeping people where they are as opposed to allowing them to progress. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to combine creative efforts so that you can adapt whatever technology you, you might have available to you to the cause. You've got to um, ensure that everybody is bought into the to the same ideals that everybody has awareness of what the cause is what the consequences of inaction are and it works absolutely best when people see local people see one set of local people working with you and prospering and ask the question hey can i get in on that deal right and the answer is then absolutely yes this is the this is this is the uh, the the process here are the local people that are empowered to assist you further and you know you you gently and gradually allow a transfer and exchange to happen with an intention you know the intention is always drawing down carbon and creating new cloud cover those intentions are always there but they have to be shared in a, a very sensitive and a very uh, collaborative way Right. And do you see farmers that are doing mon monoculture farming switching to uh, permaculture? Yes, we do. Um, obviously, a lot of the time it's not all at once. Mm -hmm. um, just as here in Ireland where I live, you, you, know, you see a lot of farmers starting to do some rewilding because they've started to see the benefits of having older growth forest on their land. You, know, you you start to see that gradually in, in many cases if there's existing farming going on. There are many places where we work where there is literally nothing. <laughs> I mean, that where it's not a matter of change of practice, it's a matter of actually inventing whole new practices that previously didn't exist there. So when you say um, nothing, you mean there's no 
it's bare land, degraded uh, I, land? I'm, I'm talking about heavily degraded land. Okay. Um, or heavily degraded mangrove or heavily degraded anything, right? Like mm -hmm. he heavily degraded water catchment systems yeah. where, you know, the, the land has literally is in need of rehabilitation. I, I, I mean, there, there's something like uh, 24 million square kilometers of degraded land in the world now. Mm -hmm. uh, roughly half of that, or actually nearly two thirds of that is equatorial. Um, and it's equatorial forest regrowth and, um, you know, mangrove regrowth that has the biggest impact right. uh, on direct impact on climate, especially on cloud cover. I mean, if you can, I mean, trees make clouds. Right. They put up microorganisms and, and polyaromatic hydrocarbons into the atmosphere that actually seed cloud. If you could increase equatorial cloud cover by just under 2%, uh, you can actually reverse the direction of global warming. You can actually make for global cooling for a period and give us a, a breathing space to actually make the carbon reductions mm -hmm. that everyone is promising, but nobody actually seems to have a very good plan for. Yes, and that will also solve a lot of... Um, the farmers I'm talking with are talking a lot of, uh, of drought, not enough yeah. rain. Um, so that will definitely, definitely help them. But one of the things that I keep on getting pushbacks is, um, will it fill the masses? We have so many mouths to fill in, in today's world. If you look at the ultimate productivity of a permaculture acre of land, and you look at the ultimate productivity of an acre of row farm, it is absolutely true that you can grow more calories in a row farm provided you are willing to tolerate using oil to fund that growth. Mm -hmm. So if you take, you know, the best GM corn hybrid, low, low stature corn, and you add to it the, the right pesticides, the right fertilizers at the right times, you can create a lot of calories per acre that way, but they're only calories of corn. Now, the food industry in the U.S. has, you know, figured out ways to turn corn calories into literally just about everything else you can imagine, and that's fine, uh, <laughs> but it's not very sustainable uh, for human health, and it's certainly not very sustainable so far, and it's certainly not very sustainable from an actual net calorie load. You can feed roughly 10 people per acre that way, with the permaculture food forest, you can feed roughly eight people per acre permanently without any oil input whatsoever. Mm -hmm. The tricky part is that it's, it's not as easy to harvest as a row farm. And so you need to have more people local to that. You need better distribution, local distribution, to be able to distribute those calories well. But those calories are very diverse. They're very good for you. You know, they they're, tend to be organic and high quality. The actual number of people that you could feed, if we were to turn, you know, that 10, 10 million square kilometers of uh, degraded land back into, you know, permaculture, mosaic, food and rainforest, you actually generate enough calories to feed about 12 billion people just off that. 
Yeah. But you need to upgrade the distribution methodologies. You need to work out clever solutions for things. And by and large, you know, we do see that happening and we and the consequences for local people is their income, you know, triples or more uh, very quickly. Let's assume we can do that, right? We can yeah. farm all, all those lands. We have a different issue where it's either too hot or too cold. Can that be done in, let's say, cold countries? I'm, I'm in New York, right? Can that be done in snowy New York? There are definitely good quality permaculture farms all around that area. And actually, within the city, it's very well proven that you can grow food inside the city if you're willing to be creative about it. And there are also lots of opportunities to transform foods uh, you know, inside urban environments and inside cities, uh, especially with the rise of synthetic biology, being able to fuel bioreactors from waste streams that actually then produce really useful food. So there are opportunities to scale up both very traditional organic food, but also um, baseload proteins, baseload calories uh, in you know, really novel, creative, and very healthy ways. Right. And there's also um, vertical farmers that we could do. The only issue I have with that, and maybe it's because I'm coming from the tree side, is that there is, we're solving the issue of feeding the people and thinking of end of the world, we can all be in shelters um, underground growing our own food somewhere uh, well, in the that, dark. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, certainly, that's certainly not what I was thinking of when I was talking about that. I mean, I mean you know, let's take a, a, a company that I've invested in as an example, Perfect Day. Mm-hmm. Perfect Day makes, you know, milk proteins without cows. It's, it's thousands of times more efficient to make milk proteins in a bioreactor and the product is delicious and healthy, actually healthier. And yet you don't have to do that in a bunker. You can can repurpose a brewery to be making high quality protein from very sustainable outputs. There's a bridge to that technology that is happening right now where we're going to see bioreactors that can be fueled from sunlight and the carbon dioxide in the air directly. Yeah. And and then it's obviously the byproduct is we will not need so many pasture lands. So that, that's Yeah, exactly. And, and also a big byproduct is that you're not cruel to a lot of cows. Yes. Now, with your background, you could have gone with another direction and invest in invest or invent, right, technology to fight climate change versus just going to the natural resource. Why did you end up with trees? It's well, not close to how you started with, with uh, poverty. When I look at technology, yeah, I have a very broad mind as to what constitutes technology. Permaculture is a technology. <laughs> you know, it's... It's no different to bioengineering a single cell to produce proteins to mm-hmm. bioengineer your farm so that it produces goat cheese mozzarella and heirloom tomatoes. <laughs> they are both bioengineering tasks. It's just one is very macro and one is very micro. They're both highly, highly 
evolved technologies, looking at nature and and harnessing nature in a way that's that nature wants to work with you is a technology. Make no mistake. I mean, the whole field of biomimicry is you know encompasses that working with nature, and nature has had a billion years to develop some of the technology. I mean. One of the exciting things to me I found out some years ago is that every chloroplast on the planet in every leaf is actually a quantum computer and a quantum computer that calculates where to send which color of photon, where to send which color of light Mm -hmm. to the right molecule to harness it in the time it takes for the photon to go from the surface of the leaf to the chloroplast. I mean, that is a quantum computing challenge that you can marvel at. It's so, so powerful. And yet it's literally in every single chloroplast of every single blade of grass and every single leaf that you see around you. That's a lot of quantum computing power for real. Right. (laughs) Um, And nature came up with it a long time before there were even humans to contemplate the quantum world. Right. Take the best technology out there and use it, is my view. And don't have the hubris to imagine that just because you didn't invent it, it might not be the best thing. I totally appreciate the vision and the thought of let's harness nature for our benefit, but also respect it and not take advantage. When, when you're looking for investment, do you look for startups that are partnering with nature? in order to benefit humanity? I absolutely love startups that are doing something powerful is as regards working with nature, whether that's with software or hardware or biotech. Mm-hmm. I love systems where people have figured out something that nature does already that they can then work with to produce a new and fascinating outcome. Is there any example you can share with us? We have, for instance, in our portfolio, a company called Carbix that have figured out a way to to manufacture concrete using natural processes uh, without any high energy input, mimicking what certain kinds of bacteria already do. Mm -hmm. So when you invest, you look for startup that partner with nature? Uh, it, it is definitely one of the things that I look look for. Can you partner with nature to have a, a hugely over-leveraged, oversized impact or, or uh, transformation on mm-hmm. what is considered, especially things that transform something that we just take for granted? Right. And, and I know a lot of VCs are now shifting towards sustainability and green. Do you have any advice for others that are considering? Uh, there's a couple of things that I would say to a new investor. Firstly, skill up. Secondly, follow other investors who have already skilled up and figured out some of this stuff. Because there are actually quite a lot of counterintuitive things when you're trying to actually have an impact that you need to, to account for. And, and you know, anything counterintuitive is not, is not obvious by definition, right? So yeah. Yeah, there, there's knowledge to build up. 
And I think it's also very important not to fall for hype. Um, you once said, uh, when you don't care, you don't act, even if it's really important. So how can we make people care in order to act? There's only one tool uh, that we have, uh, and that is excellence in language and excellence in listening. You know, if, if people don't feel heard, they're not even going to listen enough to learn to care. Mm-hmm. And if people feel heard and then they listen back and all they get is doom, gloom and boring, right. uh, they're not going to care either. <laughs> and so you need to both take responsibility for making people feel heard and take responsibility for being interesting enough to actually get people to be interested because once they're interested, there's a chance they'll start to care. And if you, if you make people feel unheard and you don't make them interested, if you don't provide uh, intrigue and, and stimulate curiosity, then that door to care is going to remain pretty permanently shut. What do you wish you had known when you were first starting out? Oh, I wish I had been, I'd known to be a better listener. And I really wish that I had known the value of humility much more. That applies for every aspect in our life. Okay, so now I'm going to listen when you're going to tell me your favorite tree. never being very good at the what's your favorite yeah I just love stuff so much <laughs> and I love trees so much I love all kinds of trees so much that that it's difficult to say oh that's my favorite you know there are trees that I've hugged there are many uh, there are trees that I've climbed many uh, <laughs> there are trees that I like one of my favorite trees is literally five meters to my right there is this gorgeous little apple tree in that's planted next to my little home office set up here and yeah my routine during the fruiting season is just to literally walk up to my door and holding a lovely super crisp little apple um, and eat that as as my first entry into my office you know during the season right. I have to say I love that little tree even though it's <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not, you know, uh, a, a, a landmark on the world. It does sort of represent a lot of the things that I love. But I, I just can't play favorites. I mean, you know, if the world had, you know, a huge amount, like if we reforested Ireland coast to coast back to old oak forest the way it was with some mosaics for food and income generation, that would make me extraordinarily happy. <laughs> uh, and, and, I, and, and again, Yeah, I don't want people to think that I would prescribe that. You know, like I, you can't be prescriptive. People have to see the benefit for themselves. They've got to choose it for themselves. You know, that's the way you get real permanent transformation. Um, my grandfather used to say, you know, someone convinced against their will is of their own opinion still. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's really important to internalize. You know, you just can't beat things into people. You know, 
you've got to lead them on a journey. That is true. And this is why I ask for your favorite tree, because it's usually personal. I, I love that story of that apple entering your office, <laughs> because it's your tree. It's your yeah. experience. It's what pushes you forward. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Bill, for, for joining me today. That was fascinating, and I love that. Thanks, Tali. I'm honored to, to join you. And you know, your work too is amazing. And uh, you know, please keep it up. Thank you. And thank you everyone for joining me today. We are all beautiful butterflies, each in his and her individual ways. I wanted to thank you for joining me today in this episode. I really appreciate you coming on this journey with me and I hope you can join me next time. And remember, it only takes a small action to make a big difference. Be a butterfly. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. Please subscribe to hear more of our stories of change 